morning and afternoon. We usually start around 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. And you'll get three questions and you have to answer two out of the three. And then part two is the same. You get three more of the nine questions and you have to answer two. So it's a total of four essay questions. So we'll have the nine questions you will. to study for a couple of months. Yes. For the exam. Yeah, that's why I like to give you the study questions, but you have to be registered. If you're not registered, I'm not going to give you some of the questions. So that's why I want you to go right in and register. And if you haven't registered for your other course, uh, Pauline and Joe and I literature uh, do that as well. Because okay, I went through. Some of you were registered, some of you are not. You all have to do that. But I know some of you are as well. All right, does that help you at least to know? And then, you know, maybe at the end of our next class that you're all with me, uh, if you have any other questions you can think of, I can go over it as well. But right from right now, the important thing is that you register. Okay? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Father Elder. Okay. Happy Thanksgiving. All right. Thanks a lot. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Wednesday. <laughs>
of the rights that we went through was really, really impressive. And it's those who, who remembers that? Anybody my age remember that? I do remember. Yeah, you're all younger, you know. But the remember the the marching, the caissons, and the and the, um, and the horse, you know, without the rider. I was boots with the boots and stirrups. Yeah, it was all. Uh, and that that was Jackie Kennedy. She wanted the country to be. Uh, aware of its own history and its own traditions in the midst of that horrible tragedy. She was big into history. In fact, she get, was a professor at Southampton uh, College, Long Island, who was an expert at Lincoln's because she wanted it to follow Lincoln's thing, even to the, uh, uh, the thing that they put the casket on. Uh, is, that, is that called a case on? I remember hearing Yeah, something like that. But my, my mom... After she died, I remember we were, you know, going through stuff, getting rid of stuff in a pocketbook. She had a sprinkled, uh, like a photocopy of a print card that our church had given out. She always carried it with her everywhere she went. Yeah, I still have in my head the, the exact beat of the drums. Mm. Sticks with you for your whole lifetime. Really something. And then after that, the whole country fell apart. <laughs> so, yeah. so let me take uh, attendance. Okay, so Zoom, <clears throat> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So you're all here, right? <laughs> one of our guys is on there, one of the ones that's normally here, Daniel Corneo. Oh, Daniel is there. Oh, yeah. So I mean somebody, wait a minute. One, two. Rock, you there? You're there. Okay. Daniel Corneo here. I know you're there. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Greer, you're there, right? Yep. Yes. Jackie is there. George, you're there. Jim Meehan. Oh, you're right in front of me. Okay, you're all right. Vince, Vince is right there. And Dr. Williams is not here. Okay. Where are you? Right here. I don't see you. Hello. I don't want the mask. I just want to be able to prove okay. I can do it. But, but you're here. Okay. But you can do it. Good. Okay. I know. And then, um, so here, Dan. Yes. Yeah. And Daniel Cornell is here. Right? Yeah. Doug. Right here. Right. Lucas. Lucas. I'm right from Robert. Stephen. Again, to see the oh, Steve Meyer. Well, I told him it could be late. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Anthony is here. It's a very unusual okay. Paul and, um, and Raphael. It's an idiot. What's it? Alrighty. Good. Okay. <clears throat> I accidentally marked Steve Nyer tardy. He's not. When you see that, okay. <laughs> All right. So we are uh, getting ready to get ready, get people ready to get married, right? And we saw um, <clears throat> we've gone over uh, Canon 1058, right? That basic law that that um, looks a lot simpler than it is. That says very simply. All persons who are not prohibited by law can contract marriage. 
And that's a law, as I mentioned last time, that um, is sometimes honored in the breach because you will hear, you will hear priests and deacons um, say, I have to walk by with my, um, Dr. Anthony told me to walk from my arthritis. Uh, you'll hear priests and deacons uh, say when, 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 when they're exasperated by a couple, ultimately they'll say, well, people have a natural right to, to be married, so they shrug their shoulders and go ahead and do it. No, no, no. And we're going to get into the, um, the preparations for marriage and the, the parts of the preparation where you have a decision to make. And you are not required to do a wedding simply because somebody comes in and wants it, you know. And there are times, now most of the time you're going to say yes, but you have to be aware of the fact that sometimes you have to say no. I think I mentioned to you, did I mention to you last time the story about my friend? Yes. Yeah, okay, you know, um, we've known each other for a long time, um, and he and his, and his fiance were, uh, were having some, some problems. They wanted me to do the wedding. So they came in, they announced that they had, they had broken up and they're sitting there in, in front of me, uh, telling me the sad story, a lot of tears. And, and then it was one of these scenes that you, you would see in a sitcom, but I thought you meant this. No, I didn't mean that. I meant this, that, you know, they're going back and forth. Oh, 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 and all of a sudden, you know, they're crying, they're hugging and everything. And then John turned to me and said, okay, we're going to get married. And I looked at him and I said, no, you're not. <laughs> and you know, I mean, he was my friend and I could tell him, tell him that bluntly. Uh, and I suggested to them that they go for counseling and so on and so forth. And basically, they realized pretty quickly, no, they were not ready to give. I would, uh, did I tell you about the time that somebody actually came back and thanked me for putting the brakes on a wedding? And this is why you, you, you have to be alert to these things. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a, a couple that was just having, again, a lot of problems, you know, and you can kind of sense this, just your ordinary human sense of things, you know, you can tell when a couple is, think something's, something doesn't seem right. And I forget exactly what it was that um, had me concerned about this couple, but I, I said to them, look, you know, I think we should, we need to, to wait a little bit. You know, I didn't say you're not going to get married, but let's wait a little bit. And I suggested they go for counseling, and I even had the name of the counselor and so on and so forth. They disappeared after that, and that was that. A couple of months later, the bride called me and thanked me for having said no, because what they did was they ran off. They found, a, I think it was a Lutheran minister. He did the wedding, no questions asked. They got married, and then he proceeded to beat the you-know-what out of her. You know? oh, and I just sensed that there was some kind of a psychological problem. So... Um, you know, we, you know, we are somewhat responsible for these things. We have to be alert to, uh, to situations like this. So, um, uh, and the and the church places that responsibility on your shoulders. Yeah. yeah. If a couple comes up to you and you, 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 like you just said, and you sense it, and you say no, can they go somewhere else if they're rejected? Well, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to this. You'll see as we go through the canons that. Um, uh, it, it happens with some frequency, you know, um, and and you have to have your own approach. I mean, you, you have to follow the laws of the church, but some priests and deacons interpret them differently from other priests and deacons. For instance, um, the late Father Kaz Kowalski, who was a, was a great priest, and I, I was uh, in residence with him for a few years when I was working on the tribunal, simply had a policy. If a couple was living together, he wasn't, wasn't going to do the wedding. That was that. You know, he said, no. 
And we'll get to that scenario later on in the course, and we'll go over the options that you have. But he said, look, there are plenty of churches in Manhattan. People are free to go elsewhere. I'm not saying they can't get married, but they can't get married in this church. Well, I mean, he was within his rights up to a point. We'll just debate that as we go on, because that's a very specific scenario that comes up more often than not, as you probably know already. Okay, but the idea that people have a right to get married, yes, they do. But that doesn't mean you have to do the wedding, and sometimes they can't. We're going to go through all of the different scenarios that come up that would prevent somebody from being able to get married. So, Canon 1059, I think we started talking about this last time. This is something you need to know well, because it's misunderstood. And this is very much connected with that Canon 1108 that I mentioned to you that we haven't actually officially gotten to yet, about the concerns who is bound by Catholic ecclesiastical law. And we've seen that basically just Catholics, but there are certain scenarios when non-Catholics are also bound by ecclesiastical law. This is one of them. So, Canon 1059, even if only one party is Catholic, the marriage of Catholics is governed not only by divine law, but also by canon law, without prejudice, of course, to the competence of civil authority, etc. But it's governed by divine law and also by canon law. We're talking now about a non-Catholic who wants to marry a Catholic. Because you can't have each party bound by separate laws. They're going to be married, so they're bound by Catholic laws. Now, this canon is saying, don't forget, that everyone, whether they're Catholic or not, is bound by divine law. But ecclesiastical law that normally binds only Catholics, in this case, binds non-Catholics. So we have to be aware of that. And as you saw in the midterm, that can lead to complicated scenarios. And if you don't understand what you're doing, you can get yourself confused and you can get into hot water. So just be aware of that. And this canon has evolved. The old code, the 1917 code, basically said everybody is bound by ecclesiastical laws. But even that code, I think I mentioned this last time also, even that code did make exceptions for non-Catholics who were married to non-Catholics. So just remember that basic principle that we've discussed. In general, who's bound by ecclesiastical laws? Catholics, in general, right? Are non-Catholics bound by ecclesiastical laws? No. Generally speaking, no. So we have that canon that we haven't officially gone over yet, canon 1108, that says Catholic, for validity, Catholic must be married in a Catholic ceremony. Remember this? You had all sorts of questions about this. And for validity, a Catholic must be married in a Catholic ceremony. So what happens if two non-Catholics get married in front of the justice of the peace? As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, is that a valid marriage or not? Not valid. Who said that? Me. Okay. I won't hold it against you. Okay, thanks. Just don't put that on the final. Two non-Catholics, two non-Catholics who get married in front of the justice of the peace, jumping out of an airplane, however, is that a valid marriage as far as we're concerned? Yes. By divine law. Correct. Who said that? Me. 
Anthony, you're here. Yes. Oh, oh, I marked you absent. Oh. No, don't. Yeah. No, please don't. Uh, sorry. I've had I a bad day. Oh, okay. It's all right. Okay, you see the difference. You know, you see the, and you see the problem. So, for validity, a Catholic must be married in a Catholic ceremony. So we had that scenario uh, that we had in the, uh, on the midterm where a Catholic, um, a non-Catholic, had been married before to a non-Catholic. Now wants to get married to a Catholic. And Father, what's his last name? Father Stupid, remember? Uh, could be Deacon Stupid. I think it was Deacon Stupid in this case, right? That's my contribution to the lore <laughs> of uh, Doug Woody. So Deacon Stupid said, oh, you, yeah, you, you, that was a, uh, you weren't married in a Catholic ceremony, so that's invalid as far as the church is concerned. So you don't have to worry about an annulment or anything. Oh, my God, no. It's valid. you know. And that scenario has happened. Um, in my experience on the, on the tribunal, and, and boy, the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. So you have to be aware of these things, okay? We'll go over them, especially when we officially get to Canon 1108. But, um, but generally speaking, non-Catholics are not bound by Catholic ecclesiastical laws. Uh, they're not bound by Catholic marriage laws, ecclesiastical marriage laws, unless they want to marry a Catholic. And then all these laws come into play. Any questions on Canon 1059? Father Elder, let me ask, can I ask one question? Yeah. Two unbaptized persons, no religion, get married. Are they, is that also bound by divine law? Yes. And what's the answer is? Yes. Yes, right? Okay. Everyone's bound by divine law. Okay. Divine law, right? So to the extent that divine law is present in canon law, then, then everybody in the world is bound by it. For divine law, there, there, there's no dispensation from divine law. Okay, we're talking about ecclesiastical law, and again, ecclesiastical law binds Catholics. Catholics, okay, basically. Okay. Um, so, Father Elder. Yes. What would happen if if a couple finds out that their marriage was invalid? I mean, and they're married 30 years or 40 years or something like that. Do they have to go through any remarriage type of thing? Uh, what do you mean they find out the marriage was invalid? Well, like I said, if if the marriage wasn't valid to begin with because they didn't go through, uh, the one of them was married before, and now he didn't go through an annulment, and now he gets married again. Um, so in theory, he's married to the first person. He's still married to the first marriage. So um, generally speaking, yeah, they would have to get married again, you know. But it depends. Um, because uh, when you start doing these things, and, and you'll see as we, as we start discussing the impediments towards marriage, uh, you begin to uh, get the mentality of somebody who's taking psychology for the first time, you know, and you begin to start diagnosing everybody. You know? um, and in, in cases like that, um, sometimes it's not really necessary to get into it. You know, we'll, uh, we'll be talking, uh, we, we've been talking already about uh, impediments uh, of a psychological nature right to uh, to a valid marriage right um and you might see that in a couple that's married you might think you know they're probably not really married validly because they have such serious psychological problems etc um you leave it alone <laughs> you leave it alone um as my predecessor on the tribunal said you know let sleeping dogs lie with these things you know um and as a matter of fact the candidate we're about to address uh, in fact, answer, kind of answers that question, right? 
It says marriage possesses the favor of law. Therefore, in a case of doubt, the validity of the marriage must be upheld until the contrary is proven. So you presume a marriage is valid, basically, until it's proven otherwise. But what happens sometimes is somebody discovers for real, oh, wait, this marriage is invalid. And I can see that happening probably with some frequency with Catholics who think it's okay to get married outside of the church. And then they discover years later, wait a minute, that we didn't do that right. I could see it in a case like that. Then they should get the marriage convalidated. And we'll discuss what convalidation is as we go along. Does that partially answer what you're saying? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. All right, but Canon 1060 is very important to bear in mind, especially when you're dealing with annulments and people who want annulments. It says marriage possesses the favor of the law. Therefore, in a case of doubt, the validity of a marriage must be upheld until the contrary is proven. And I have this experience all the time. And this is a serious problem that we've had in the United States with annulments. When someone walks through the doors of a tribunal and says, I want an annulment, the mindset of the people on the tribunal must be, according to law, this marriage, we presume this marriage is valid. This person wants an annulment. This person has to prove that the marriage is invalid. The burden of proof is on someone who wants to prove a marriage invalid. The marriage is presumed to be valid. Unfortunately, in the United States, for many years, the approach was just the opposite. And I think in some tribunals to this day, it's probably still the same. That somebody would come through the doors of a tribunal and that person was looked upon as kind of a customer. And we want to give this person their annulment. It's like applying for a driver's license or something. And so everybody was working, not everybody, but a lot of people in the tribunal were working to facilitate an affirmative decision by the tribunal. In other words, a decision, the marriage is invalid. So in effect, they were breaking this law, right? They were presuming the marriage was invalid. And it happened. I remember once, one case in particular, when someone had come to the tribunal seeking an annulment. It was a gentleman and he had a wife and I don't know how many kids, more than one kid I remember. And I wasn't a judge yet. I just started in the tribunal. And I was just one of the people who does the intake in the tribunal. And part of my job was to notify the respondent, as the other party is called, and inform her that her ex-husband is seeking a decision from the tribunal about the validity of the marriage. So she responded indeed. And she said she was heartbroken. She said, I know that the tribunal is going to give my husband this annulment. And I just want to say that I believe that we are still married. And I'm heartbroken and my children are heartbroken. And if the tribunal grants this annulment, I'm going to leave the Catholic Church. So that kind of stuff was going on a lot. And she knew that the tribunal was kind of against her. It was supposed to be 
you know, without favoritism, but basically she kind of knew that the tribunal was against her because that's the way things were going in this country. I'm talking about back in the 90s. So, and it was a very serious problem. And, you know, I think it did lead to people leaving the church. It led to a lot of cynicism on the part of a lot of Catholics. Monsignor Joe Lamort, who was the vicar general for the archdiocese, a classmate of mine, who was here just a week ago for mass we had. Remember once we had a, it was another, we were celebrating our class anniversary a few years ago, and we were at his parish. He had a question about a wedding that he was doing. So we started talking about it, but then at one point he said, well, it doesn't really matter what I do because apparently everything I do is invalid anyway. Because the joke was, if you bring a case to a tribunal, they're going to declare the marriage was invalid no matter what. That was kind of the mentality in this country and parts of Western Europe. And I think it led to a lot of damage. It led to a lot of confusion, certainly, on the part of a lot of Catholics. And priests, you know, priests and deacons were left scratching their heads. And they were left with this pastoral problem. You know, what do we do in a case like this? You know, in these different types of cases. So this is a canon that we need to be aware of. So when someone comes to you in the rectory or wherever you're going to be meeting people and says, you know, deacon, I want to get an annulment. You have to not encourage them to think of this as, as I said, something like a driver's license, you know. And we'll get into this, the process towards the end of this course. But it's a judicial procedure. There's a trial that takes place, a trial about the validity of the marriage. And your presumption has to be, and you can tell this to them in as nice a way as you can, presumption is the marriage is valid. You know, because, well, you know, you got married in front of a priest or a deacon, whatever, and said the vows. And now you're saying marriage is invalid. So why do you say that? So bring this, then you, you know, you yourself don't pass judgment on it. But you say, well, we'll bring this to the attention of the tribunal. You'll help them. But basically, the marriage is valid until it's proven invalid. Exactly. Yeah. It's called, later on in, with hindsight, it's called putative. And we'll get, again, we'll get to this later. It's putative. Because a putative marriage is a marriage that was thought to be valid by everybody. And then, lo and behold, it's discovered later it was invalid. But the important point of Canon 1060 is marriage possesses the favor of the law. Marriages are presumed valid until proven otherwise. Exactly what you said. Now, Canon 1061, we discussed this in memory of Monsignor Michael Curran, as you'll discover in a moment. A few terms here. A valid marriage between the baptized is called rotum tantum. It has not been consummated. It is called rotum et consummatum if the spouses have performed between themselves in a human fashion a conjugal act which is suitable in itself for the procreation of offspring to which marriage is ordered by its nature and by which the spouses become one flesh. Number two, after marriage has been celebrated, if the spouses have lived together, consummation is presumed until the contrary is proven. 
And an invalid marriage is called putative. Here it is, okay? Uh, if at least one party celebrated it in good faith until both parties become certain of its nullity. Now, Rotham. First of all, we're talking about um, valid marriages, okay? Between the baptized, okay? Um, those are the only people we're talking about. So they're valid, but they're also between the baptized. So presumably they, they are uh, sacramental marriages. So um, a marriage, a valid marriage between the baptized is called rotten tantum, only, uh, only ratified. Tell me if you can or cannot see this. Oh, this is light. Can you see that at all? You can see it? Oh, good. Yeah. Let me try this one, see if this is better. Better. Okay. So rotum tantum, only ratified. Okay. That's if a couple um, is married and the marriage has not been consummated. Okay. Mary and Joseph, for that matter. Okay. Then we have rotum et consumatum. It's in front of you anyway in the book. Rotum and consummatum, if, and here's what they mean by consummation, if the spouses have performed between themselves in a human fashion a conjugal act which is suitable in itself for the procreation of offspring to which marriage is ordered by its nature and by which the spouses become one flesh. So consummation is very specific. And Senior Michael Curran wrote his whole dissertation on what this means, as a matter of fact. Uh, consummation in a, uh, and we'll, we'll get to this later in another, another, uh, um, another canon, humano modo, in a human, in a human manner, okay? But, um, okay. I'm sorry, it's right here. Yeah, if the spouses are performed between themselves in a human fashion, humano modo, sexual relations in a human fashion. As I said, he wrote a whole dissertation on this and the jokes that he told about it. But anyway, we can't get into them here. But uh, we could, but that's not what we came for. In a human fashion. Okay, so what does it mean to have sexual relations uh, in a human fashion? In a human fashion. It's a conjugal act which is suitable in itself for the procreation of offspring. Okay, so it's having sexual relations in a way that, that's designed by the creator, basically. Okay? That, and, it's, and it's open to the possibility of procreation. Okay? So, uh, so this excludes any other type of sexual activity. That doesn't count as humano modo, human manner. It's beautiful to so put it that way, a human manner. Okay? 
Um, so, but also it has to be um, open to the possibility of the procreation of offspring. So that means if you're using, even if you're using arti artificial birth control, you know, you're not performing um, the sexual act in a uh, human manner, right? because because the, the, basically the end for which the act was designed, you're frustrated. Right? So even artificial birth control, uh, if, if that if that is used, it's considered uh, that it is not humano modo. And increasingly, uh, tribunals are are granting affirmative decisions um, uh, in in cases where uh, somebody. It's hard to prove this, but you you can up to a point uh, where they're saying that. When the whole time we were married, we never ever had sexual relations without using artificial artificial birth control. So, um, if that's the case, then you know one or both of the parties excluded uh, the good of offspring from the beginning of, of marriage. Remember the three bona, the three uh, three goods of marriage. You remember? Yes. What are the three goods of marriage? Fidelity. Fidelity. Openness to uh, offspring. Offspring and. And uh. Wait. Permanence. Permanence. Okay. Permanence. Yes. All right. So um, so one of these, you know, they're all they're all the they're all different bona, right? Let's see over here. No. So you have the good of uh, being open to the possibility of offspring. So that would be called bonum prolis. You don't have to know this for an exam or anything. Just so you hear the term, but you will hear, hear it if you're doing any number of annulments. Um, so if somebody gets married with an intention contra bonum prolis, against the good of offspring, um, that person is in effect, um, it, it, not in effect, is really partially simulating marriage. Because you have to have, have these three bona there for a real marriage. So if a person is not um, consenting to the three bona, the person is simulating marriage. If a person is not consenting to any of the bona, it's total simulation. We're going to get into this later. There's a canon that speaks about simu uh, simulation. Uh, if a person excludes uh, one, uh, one or two of the bona, then it's partial simulation, and this happens all the time now. You know, and more and more num uh, tribunals are granting decisions uh, on the basis of, as I said, um, partial simulation with an intention against the good of of offspring contra bonum prolis. Right. So it's very important to um, to be aware of that. Uh, that that for a marriage to be uh, truly consummated, uh, the spouses have to have had sexual relations in a human manner. Okay. So using your example, Father, if they said we, we never had relations without the use of, of, of contraceptives, that would that be an example of radu tantu? Um, not considered consummated? Yeah, right. It's not consummated. Yeah, in effect, yeah, yeah. So, and this comes up, uh, it, it gets confusing. This comes up in certain situations where um, 
and we will see this in a canon that's coming up fairly quickly, that a marriage that is rotten et consummatum can't be broken up at all. The Pope can't break that up. And we're going to see there are certain situations where the marriage bond can actually be dissolved. And I don't want to jump too far ahead. But if you have a case where a marriage is rotten and non consummatum, the marriage can possibly be dissolved for that very reason. But we'll see this later. But the point is, a truly sacramental and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved. We'll get into this later. Just know these terms. Rotten tantum and rotten consummatum. And then also that other term, putative, that I mentioned. Number three, putative. An invalid marriage is called putative if at least one party celebrated it in good faith until both parties become certain of its validity. Typically, in a tribunal decision, there's an affirmative decision if the marriage is declared invalid. The judge will say, when he's giving the facts at the beginning of the case, he'll say that John and Joyce were married at such and such a church on such and such a day. On that day, they putatively contracted marriage. Meaning they thought the marriage was valid at the time. But it turns out, as you'll discover at the end of this definitive sentence, it was in fact invalid. So putative, it was thought to be valid. It turns out it's invalid. Just be aware of that because you'll see that when you're dealing with annulments. You can skip canon 1062 about promises of marriage. This doesn't really go on in the United States. And now we get to the section on the preparation for marriage. Pastoral care and those things which must precede the celebration of marriage. A lot of this is new in this code. And the code is giving you instructions and it's exhorting you to do all sorts of things to prepare people for marriage. And you know the background to the code, the Second Vatican Council and awareness at the council of the importance of marriage and the importance of addressing marriage better than the church had been addressing it. And an emphasis on helping couples prepare for marriage. And as you can imagine, St. John Paul II had a lot to do with this because from an early part of his life, he was very, very concerned with marriage and married couples. He did a lot of work with married couples and he wrote a lot about it and so forth. So what does the code tell us that we should do? And this is a very rich canon. This first canon here, canon 1063. It contains a lot of good stuff that should give you a lot of ideas about what to do to prepare people for marriage. So canon 1063, pastors of souls are obliged, this is an obligation, they're obliged to take care that their ecclesiastical community offers the Christian faith with the assistance by which the matrimonial state is preserved in a Christian spirit and advances in perfection. This assistance must be offered especially by, and then it gets into these different types of preparation. So there's, first of all, there's remote preparation. 
and then there's there's proximate preparation excuse me and then there's the um uh the wedding itself so remote preparation so this starts at a young age preaching and catechesis adapted to minors youth and adults and even the use of instruments of social communication by which the christian faithful are instructed about the meaning of christian marriage about the function of christian spouses and parents so we are preparing people for marriage from a very young age as soon as they come to us as soon as we start giving them religious instruction um we're already preparing them for marriage and it's important to have that in mind you know we're not just talking about things but most of the people who come to us for religious education are going to get married and we need to have them prepared so so they should know a lot about marriage before they um before they get engaged right so everything they have to do with the church all of their contacts with the church before that should in some way be helping them uh to get ready for uh for matrimony uh, and this that's a tall order so it's not just religious education um it's and it's religious education for for kids for teenagers for adults it's also social communication obviously we don't have the time in this course to get into all the different ways you can do this but to be aware of that and this is one of the challenges you will face um, in your parishes um, one of the big ways in which you can help um, the, the probably the one priest left in your parish um, to uh, to prepare people for marriage to, to be someone who can really uh, help people be aware of the, uh, the beauty of marriage the sanctity of marriage and all that's required uh, to uh, to enter into marriage and then number two personal preparation to enter marriage which disposes the spouses to the holiness and duties of their new state. So this is now, obviously, a couple has decided we want to get married and they come to see. So now you have a personal preparation. And you're, uh, those of you who are taking this for credit, right, you're writing a little paper uh, on, on the pre-Cana program. Um, and that's part of it, right? Uh, Pre-Cana is part of it. And again, this is a way in which you can really help the priest or priests in your parish, uh, because in this day and age, just think about it for, for a split second. In this day and age, um, people who want to get married need a lot of help. They need a lot of support. They've got the whole culture against them. Right? So, it, and as the more personal you can make the preparation, the better. Um, and that means somebody has to somehow be able to make the time to sit down with a couple you know and and talk to them get their story find out where they're coming from uh and talk to them personally about this journey that they're on you know it's um and it, it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of commitment and uh, i can tell you from experience um a lot of priests don't have the time you know, and they'll make the time as best they can, and other things have to suffer. So the extent to which you can help with this, it's, it's very, very important. So we have pre-canon uh, programs in our, in our diocese, but that personal uh, encounter with the couple is, is all important. They need to feel that they're a part of the church. They need to feel that, uh, you know, they're part of this church community, that the, the parish welcomes them, the church, the, the church is there, the parish is there to support them. Um, so when they get married, uh, they will have, to the extent that we can help them, they will have a, a, a fruitful marriage, but also that they will 
a lot of the time people are coming back to the church after having been away, and then now they want to get married. And they haven't gone to church maybe for, for years. And it's a time now to invite them to come back and begin to um, um, live the life of the church again. You know? So that's a, this is a, a golden opportunity, and it's an important responsibility that we all have. So it's, it's something to, to think about um, and to, to plan out. You know, parishes have all these different approaches to this, but it's, it's very, very important, that personal uh, preparation. We're going to get into the, um, the canonical details of this, the documents you need and so forth. But just that personal preparation, this is what this, this particular canon is speaking about. Um, just encountering them in a very personal way. And then the liturgy itself is very important because people are going to remember, most people are going to remember their, their wedding day for the rest of their lives. Uh, so that's all important. You know, the homily that you give, certainly, uh, you're giving a homily at, at a wedding, is is really, really important. But the, the wedding itself, the beauty of the wedding, is something that just stays with people um, for the rest of their lives. And nowadays, so a lot of the time, they record the whole thing anyway. There was a, a, a couple that I, I was friends with in my first parish who uh, recorded their wedding that, that I, I did. And uh, those are the days when they were just beginning to do these kinds of things and we're having a lot of problems, you know. And to my chagrin, every year they would play back the tape of the wedding, including my homily, <laughs> and all this kind of stuff, and you know, and, and they would invite me to come over, and I have to sit there looking at my homily, you know, so, um, but people remember these things, you know, so, um, so that, that is a very, very important part of, of wedding preparation, is, is the liturgy itself, and you want to get them uh, involved with the preparation for the liturgy, as most of them very much want to be. Uh, involved, you know, with uh, you know music and, and readings and, and, and all the rest. But that's that's very important um, as well. And finally, um, we'll just read that that uh, one paragraph. A fruitful liturgical celebration of marriage wishes to show that the spouses signify and share in the mystery of the unity and fruitful love between Christ and the Church. Behold the Lamb of God, right? The priest says um, just before communion, Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, blessed are those who are called uh, to the supper of the Lamb. The same from the book of Revelation, and the reference is to the wedding feast, right? Am I correct, Father? It's the references to the blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You know? So the Mass itself, you know, the spousal relationship that our Lord has to his church, you know, that's something that is reflected in marriage and, and vice versa. You know, so it can be very, very fruitful if they if they enter into the mystery of, of uh, the, the liturgy, the mystery of the mass itself. They are entering into um, in, into a mystery of matrimony, you know, because that's the relationship the Lord has with His Church. You know? So it can be very, very fruitful, and it should be very, very fruitful. It requires uh, requires a lot of work. And then finally, <clears throat> help offered to those who are married so that faithfully preserving and protecting the conjugal covenant, they daily come to lead holier and fuller lives in their family. This is something we're, we're still doing a pretty poor job with, I think. You know, um, uh, once the couple gets married, uh, we don't want to see them disappear. You know, and this is an, just an, an ongoing pastoral problem that needs to be addressed. But um, you want to 
follow up, you know, after the marriage. And and uh, different parishes try different things with this. Um, and you yourselves will be called upon to try to help with this. You know, even something as simple as a, you know, phone call when they come back from the honeymoon, or maybe a month or two after the marriage or something. How are you doing? Blah blah blah. You know, that kind of thing. Or, or programs for those who are um, who have been married. But you want to invite them you know, to, to stay connected. And if you've had a good, if you've established a good relationship with them in the preparation process for marriage, uh, this can be a little bit easier. So, and what is the Suprema Lex we remember? Anybody remember? Suprema Lex? You know, but don't, don't tell them. Okay. None of you have gone to Douglaston, right? So you don't, you've never seen this logo. Suprema Lex. We, we, I mentioned this a couple of times. What does that word itself, uh, that term itself mean, Suprema Lex? Anybody? Well, what does Lex mean? Law. This is law. Law. Supreme law. Supreme law is? Salvation of souls. Salus animarum, right? Salvation of souls. By tradition, uh, the Code of Canon Law mentions this in the very last canon. That's the supreme law. That's what we're all about. So when a couple comes to you to um, because they want to get married, you're going to be thinking about all the stuff that you learned in this course, I hope. All the, all the documents you have to get, all the meetings you have to have, you know, the liturgy has to be prepared, uh, the organist has to be paid, all the rest. You're going to be thinking about all of these things you have to do. But you have to remember, first and foremost, as a cleric, as someone who's ordained, when they come to see you, your first responsibility is this Suprema Lex. Your first responsibility is their salvation. Okay, that's what this is all about. Now, you have a couple of people who have very often have not been to Mass in, you know, 15 years, you know, probably in their mid-30s, whatever. Um, they haven't been to Mass in a long time. They want a nice church ceremony. You are charged with their salvation. Okay. That's, that's what this is all about. So we need to keep that in mind when we're preparing a couple for marriage. Solace on the bottom. And then um, <clears throat> you certainly need to know that canon. Yeah, uh, canon 1064 you don't need uh, for an exam. It's just uh, um, it's really for the uh, for the bishop to remember that he has to organize these things, right? It is for the local ordinary to take care that such assistance is organized fittingly after he has heard people are experts and so on and so forth. So don't worry about that. That's his problem. Um, Canon 1065, though, is very important and, and it's misunderstood. All right. Canon 1065. Catholics who have not yet received the sacrament of confirmation are to receive it before they are admitted to marriage if it can be done without grave inconvenience. And to receive the sacrament of marriage fruitfully, spouses are urged especially to approach the sacraments of penance and of the Most Holy Eucharist. So, is it required for validity that a person be confirmed before uh, they get married? Yes. Not required. No. Why do you say it's not required? Because there could be a grave inconvenience. How do you know that something is required for validity? It's the same must. <laughs> 
It will, it will, it will use the word validity. <laughs> All right, the canon will say, for validity, this is required. Okay. Uh, Cardinal Dolan came to um, a parish where I was. Actually, it was Father Kowalski, who was pastor of Our Lady of Good Counsel on the Upper East Side. And um, he was there for the, the Catholic Underground. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's uh, yeah. most of you have heard of that. It's a wonderful uh, um, event for for young people, sponsored by the uh, the CFRs. And he was he was there that that night to do it. He was going to do the confirmation and so forth. He had been invited to dinner, but you know he was running late and so on and so forth. And the cook had prepared um, you know meatloaf and mashed potatoes. It was really really good, you know. So um, he's uh, he's running into the sacristy. And she was saying, you know, Your Eminence, wouldn't you like just a little meatloaf? And he hesitated and said, okay, I'll have a little bit. And he said, and I'll have some potatoes for validity. <laughs> so validity, all right, the, 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 the canon will say it uh, if it's required for validity. So canon 1065 says Catholics who have not yet received the sacrament of confirmation are to receive it. Right, before they are admitted to marriage, if it can be done without grave inconvenience. But they are to receive it. It doesn't say they are to receive it for validity. It simply says they are to receive it. In other words, yes, receive it. You can't, all right, it doesn't affect validity, but you're supposed to receive it. Okay? You got that? Because for some reason, guys forget this, you know, and they get all confused. You know? if, if it can be done without grave inconvenience. And again, what is the Suprema Lex? Follows on anymore, and that's why we're doing this, you know. Father, why do I have to, or deacon, why do I have to go uh, get confirmation now, you know? Well, because I want you to be saved. We well, don't say in those terms, but you know. But that's why we're doing that. We want them to to um, enter into the full life of the church. Right? So uh, that's a very important part of preparation for marriage. If if a couple is not married already, is not uh, has not received confirmation already, but if it can't be done, it can't be done. And then you want, but even then, you want to follow up. So um, they can't because whatever um, can't be done before the date. Okay, let's do it after the date, and then you follow up and get after them after the date. Um, and number two, again, um, spouses are urged, especially to approach the sacraments of penance with most holy Eucharist. So we're boring you to tears. <laughs> okay. Um, so are they, are you required to do that for validity? No, okay. But again, salus animarum, right? Um, to receive the sacrament of marriage fruitfully, spouses are urged, are urged. Okay, that's what it says. Are urged, especially, to approach the sacraments of penance and of the most holy Eucharist. So, we want to encourage them to do that. A lot of the time, people have been away from um, confession for you know many many years. When the Sisters of Life were running the um, the Family Life Office. They introduced um, the celebration of the sacrament of penance as uh, part of the uh, uh, pre-cana. Uh, um, Sister, Sister Veronica, remember she, she did that, and it was it was a great idea, you know. And, people, and it was very fruitful because priests were aware of the situation. They were and they were very attuned to bringing people back to the church and so forth. So it was a very a very fruitful thing that was that was done. Um, when I was newly ordained. Uh, at Sacred Heart in Suffern, the um, the practice had been they they had um, how many priests did they have when I well there were there were, there were three of us when I when I f uh, first arrived that's how long ago that was imagine three priests in one parish now you know 
And the practice was for the wedding rehearsal, one priest would do the rehearsal. Another priest would go and sit in the confessional during the rehearsal. And everybody would be urged to go to confession. So nowadays, you can't find a priest. But still, you need to urge them to go to the sacrament of penance. And indeed, talk about it. Because again, when you're preparing them for marriage, you're preparing them for their Christian lives as married people. So a lot of people need the basics. Do you pray together? Have you heard of a prayer called the Our Father? Have you heard of the rosary? Basic things like that. And then just getting to mass regularly and so forth. And part of your preparation for them is an important part, is a spiritual preparation. That you just want to get them back to the point where they're leading at least somewhat normal Catholic lives. It's a lot of work. People will guess you to death, and then they will disappear after they get married. But you do your best. So they're to be urged to approach the sacrament of penance in the most holy Eucharist. And of course, if possible, the marriage, the wedding should take place at a mass if both of them are baptized, of course. But I remember in my current, my last parish where I was actually a pastor, there was a couple that wanted to get married. And they weren't that old. But for some reason, they wanted everything over with quick. They didn't want any music. Let's just get it over with quick. They didn't want a mass. It was having me a little nervous. But sometimes people have legitimate reasons for that. Sometimes they're very private people. They don't want a whole big deal. But you have to kind of look at those situations and talk to them about it. And of course, I haven't seen them since. That's what happens. So you do your best. Canon 1066, before a marriage is celebrated, it must be evident that nothing stands in the way of its valid and licit celebration. It's obvious, but just an emphasis is there. Canon 1067, the Conference of Bishops is to establish norms about the examination of spouses and about the marriage bans or other opportune means to accomplish the investigations necessary before marriage. After these norms have been diligently observed, the pastor can proceed to assist at the marriage. Now, this has been approached in all sorts of ways. You need some outside testimony, as it were, that there are no foreseeable problems with this marriage. The way this was done in the old days was you had the bans of marriage. When I was a child, I remember in Connecticut, in Fairfield, I remember every week, because it was a young parish. We were young kids. My parents were young. And there were a lot of kids there and so forth, and a lot of young people getting married. So almost every week you would see the bans of marriage listed. These people are going to get married and so forth. And the bans of marriage were there so that if anybody sees a problem with this foreseen union, they should notify the pastor. It's also kind of a badge of honor for people. Like, look at me, I'm going to get married. But it has to be publicized in that sense. 
Now, what good does that do in, you know, uh, in a lot of parishes that we all experience in a big metropolitan area, area where people are coming and going, you know? It's one thing if it's a small town where people kind of grow up together and know each other, but if it's a big place where people are coming and going, that's not going to be so helpful. So our diocese have worked out other ways um, to accomplish the same end. Um, and <clears throat> uh, you'll see you'll get uh, these letters of freedom that uh, that people uh, are, that the couple are required to give to people who know them. So these people can testify, yes, I've known so-and-so for X number of years, everything's great, you know. Um, so there are different ways, but you have to look beyond the couple to see if anyone has something to say um, that's, uh, you know, especially that could be a problem. You know, I, I remember getting a phone call once uh, from the father, it might have been the father of the bride, or maybe the mother, I forget who it was, but somebody called and said, you know, so-and-so wants to get married. There are a lot of problems, you know, and all this, and, and started telling me about all these problems. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know? So I, without revealing my sources, you know, um, and, and not bringing, bringing it up at all directly, I had to kind of dig a little bit deeper to see, uh, you know, how things were going with this couple. You know? So, um, yeah, sometimes that information can be very important. But the Conference of Bishops establishes these norms, and then they're further refined in our own diocese. Right? Uh, and you, after these norms have been diligently observed, then the pastor can proceed to assist with marriage. Right? So you have to do that. Right? Now, um, <clears throat> Canon 1068 um, uh, is something that I didn't think about that much until it happened to me with my own sister. Um, procedure in danger of death. Uh, in danger of death, and if other proofs cannot be obtained, the affirmation of the contracting parties, um, even even sworn if the case warrants it, that they are baptized and are prevented by no impediment is sufficient unless they are unless there are indications to the contrary. Um, my, my sister, I, I don't know if I mentioned that to you, she um, I basically um, convalidated her, her marriage on her deathbed a few hours before she died. You know. Um, but in this case, of course, I knew very well that she was baptized. I knew very well that her husband was, was not baptized. You know? um, and I granted them a dispensation. We'll see this. You can grant dispensations, uh, even if you're a deacon, uh, and there's danger of death. You know? um, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. In danger of death, then um, a lot of these normal procedures go out, go out the window. You don't have to start collecting baptismal certificates and all these other things. You just kind of... Um, ascertain as best you can what the truth is about about, about the different items that you are required to uh, uh, to investigate, right? So, um, uh, <clears throat> so basically, I think that's sufficient, right? In danger of death, um, sometimes when you can't get these documents, um, you get the affirmation of the contracting parties about their baptism, the lack of it, uh, and any other impediments. We're going to get to the impediments uh, in a bit. Canon 1069. Yeah. So I take a give dispensation. We're going to get to that. That's not in this canon. All right. Um, there's a whole canon that's very complicated that deals with dispensations that you can grant um, in danger of death. Thank you. Okay. Um, canon 1069. 
or the faithful are obliged to reveal any impediments they know about uh, to the pastor or local ordinary before the celebration of the marriage. Okay, um, people should know that. Sometimes people, you know, just want to keep their mouths shut. That's unfortunate. They're, but they are obliged uh, to reveal these things. Okay. Um, uh, Canon 1070, this will happen a lot in your experience. It'll happen all the time in your experience, technically, because you're not the pastor. If someone other than the pastor who was to assist in marriage has conducted the investigations, the person is to notify the pastor about the results as soon as possible through an authentic document. This happens all the time. Um, when, um, uh, well, it'll happen to you, to you all the time. You're the person other than the pastor. You're required to, to um, uh, conduct the investigations, get all the documentation and so forth. You will do all the paperwork, as we say, right? And then it's your responsibility to notify the pastor, right? Very often it happens that somebody wants to get married um, in another parish, uh, and you, you say one of your parishioners wants to get married in another parish uh, somewhere, uh, and then there'll be a, a dialogue. Say they want to get married in Ohio, you know? because um, they're from Ohio and they're, you know, you want to go back home and so forth to get married. Uh, then there'll be a dialogue between you and the pastor about who's going to do, do what, you know. Um, and he'll, he'll, he'll be very happy if you do the paperwork for him, you know, in most cases. Uh, but you have to work that out. Sometimes the paperwork is done where they're going to get married. Sometimes it's done um, elsewhere. Uh, so you have, to, uh, you have to work that out. Okay. There's... Um, parish where I was uh, in residence uh, for several years, Midtown Manhattan, St. Agnes on 43rd Street. Um, they do this all the time because so many people go to St. Agnes um, who, who work in the area but don't live in the area. So they will ask one of the priests at St. Agnes to do all the paperwork for their wedding that's going to take place maybe in Queens or maybe in Pennsylvania or wherever it is. But um, that, that happens uh, frequently. So somebody's got to do the paperwork and then notify the pastor. Okay. Canon 1071. Um, <clears throat> now notice in, in the Green Book, the introduction they give to this. Marriage situations requiring the local ordinary's permission. If you need the local ordinary's permission, are we talking about validity here? No. Okay. Uh, we're just talking about permission. If you don't get his permission, you're a bad boy, you know, but it's not invalid. So, except in a case of necessity, a person is not to assist without the permission of the local ordinary at, at the following marriages. Marriage of transients. Okay, remember what transients are? Yes. People that, people that don't live in the area that are just passing by. Right. And the, the actual answer is that people who do not have a domicile or a quasi-domicile at all. The Vaji. Vagas? Right. Vaji? Correct. Yeah. Right. So marriage of tranchants. All right. So, uh, you know, beware, as I said, beware the Vagas. You know, if somebody is a Vagas, uh, you don't want to do the the marriage uh, unless you get permission from uh, from the chancery office because there's probably some problem there that has to be dealt with, okay? Um, and please, number two, a marriage which cannot be recognized or celebrated according to the norm of civil law. 
you need the ordinary's permission, but you better be very careful what you're doing here. This comes up with some frequency. It came up a lot when I was working on the tribunal. It comes up, I'm sure it comes up a lot now, even more probably now, with illegal immigrants. You know what's going on, right? They're trying to live their lives, and they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. What can they do? Can the church at least come to help them? So sometimes they want to have basically a secret marriage. They want to have a church wedding, but they don't want to get a marriage license or do anything that will sound the alarm with ICE or anything like that. So in a situation like that, you better darn well get permission from the local ordinary. Don't do this yourself, because you're breaking the law. You're breaking the civil law. And it came up a lot, as I said, when I was working on the tribunal, and it was just a case-by-case kind of thing. It's a very delicate kind of thing. So be very, very careful about these things. And don't do it unless somebody in the chancellor's office has told you to do it. And then a marriage of a person who is bound by natural obligations toward another party or children arising from previous unions. So, you know, somebody has to pay alimony, child support, and all that. You want to make sure you're not doing injustice to another party. So at some point, if somebody's been married before, you will find out that they have been married before, and then you have to address these issues. And again, if there's a problem along those lines, that there's alimony, child support, whatever, then you need permission from the local ordinary. You have to discuss the situation with them. A person who has notoriously rejected the Catholic faith. We'll get into that in a moment. We'll get into that in a moment. There's a lot in this one. Marriage of a person who's under a censure. So a person who's excommunicated, whatever. You may not do that person's wedding, but again, consult the local ordinary. A marriage of a minor child whom the parents are unaware or reasonably opposed. Remember Canon 97. What's a minor? It's an 18. Right, under the age of 18. Now, I've got news for you. Even if you think you can do this because you're thinking, well, it's not for validity. Again, you're breaking the law. I think in most states, at least I think in all of our states, the age is 18. So you're breaking the law. But there's a further requirement in Canon law because if a person is a minor, you know the obvious problems that would be there for a minor. So again, if you have a situation like that, call the chancery office because number one, you don't want to break civil law. But number two, even if you can get by that somehow, I don't know how you could, you still don't want to break Canon law. There has to be a really good pastoral reason for this. And if this could be a marriage by proxy that we'll get to later in Canon 1105, you need permission of the ordinary for that. But I don't think that's even allowed in our states. So I wouldn't even worry about marriage by proxy. And then finally, this thing about notoriously rejecting the Catholic faith. 
the local ordinary is not to grant permission to assist at the marriage of a person who has notoriously rejected the Catholic faith unless the norms mentioned in Canon 1125 have been observed with necessary adaptation. Okay, we're going to get into that at some point. But a person who has notoriously rejected the Catholic faith, what does that mean? They shouldn't get married in the church. Pardon? They shouldn't get married in the church. Well, that's the end result. But what does it mean in itself that a person has notoriously rejected the Catholic faith? It sounds like it has some public overlay to it. Or apostasy. Or abortion. Abortion, apostasy. Right. I mean, there are all these different possibilities there. Now, technically, all it means, notorious, we think in terms of it, you know, there are headlines and the whole world knows about this. It doesn't have to be known um, in a very large group. But if it's known among, uh, say, a small circle of a person's family and friends, um, yeah, he was baptized Catholic, but boy, what the things he has to say about the church, and he never goes to Mass, and he declares himself to be an atheist, you know. And, and all the people around him know this, you know. Well, then he's no. Then he's he has notoriously rejected the Catholic faith, right? Uh, he has rejected the faith in a way that it has become notorious, that it's created a scandal, basically, among at least you know a, a small group of people, at least, right? It could be a large group of people. You could have, as you know, we said, you could have somebody like uh, you know Joe Biden, who uh, publicly declared that that he, he dissents from the teaching of the church, um, that the uh, unborn child is a, is a human person did you catch that one you know? yeah so yeah. that's that's kind of 915 right and they talk about that a lot but nobody seems to do anything about it or say anything about it and i know it's political but that's another story yeah well basically you just summed it up <laughs> that, that's the problem okay. <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> you summed it up what, what can you do you know? Um, but you, as a as a as a deacon or a priest, um, at least you you bring this to the attention of the chancery office, you know. Uh, and again, you know, unfortunately, it's coming across the way the, the way the bishops' meeting went and so forth. I, you know, I think it's come across that that the, the laws of the church hold for everyone except the rich and the powerful. You know? um, so for ordinary people, you know, the the uh, situation I just described. Uh, yeah, he called the chancery office, and uh, okay, so he's he, he was baptized a Catholic, but he, he really doesn't doesn't believe what the church teaches, and he kind of hates the church, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, then uh, then you can't really do his wedding until you've uh, got permission from the um, chancery office. For that matter, yeah, I mean, if somebody like Joe Biden, uh, if they wanted to get married, a person has basically notoriously rejected the Catholic faith, at least in the sense that he's a, a formal heretic. Um, so uh, again, you would the burden would not be yours. Yeah, he is. He descended publicly from church teaching. You know, um, uh, you, you would get permission from the you would need permission from the chancellor. Okay. So that's something to mull over as we have a cup of tea or something. Okay. So I'll see you in about fifteen minutes. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. Is that okay with everybody? Okay. That works. Yeah. Good. Okay. So that means we're only a week behind instead of two weeks behind. Okay. Uh, 
I think that's all we have to look at right now for that Canon 1071, okay? Just be aware of those different scenarios. In general, whenever you have a problem, maybe we should close the door. In general, whenever you have a problem with data, that's what chancery officers are there for, you know? That's what tribunals are there for. Sometimes they forget this. They're there to help you in the parish. That's why we have all these offices. So feel free to call them with any problems that you have, you know? Okay. Is this something I want to bring up? Well, let me just, I might as well bring it up now. If you look at, if those of you who have the green commentary, if you look on page 1270, on the right-hand side, it mentions something about the Eastern Code. And it speaks about one who is forbidden by an ecclesiastical sentence to enter into a new marriage. We might as well talk about that now. These are important terms for you to know. They come up with, usually with annulments. They can come up with other things from the Vatican, maybe even from your chancery office, but typically they come from the tribunal. There's something called a vaditum and something called a monitum. Let me just tell you what those things are. So you need to know these. These are important for you to know, okay? And they're not really in the book except that little somewhat confusing right up on page 1270. So can you read that? Okay, you can read that. All right, vaditum and monitum. When somebody is, by the way, I'm using the term annulment loosely. The word annulment is not technically correct. It's really a declaration of annulment. We'll get into that later in the course. But when somebody gets an affirmative decision from a tribunal, in other words, they got their annulment, and they want to get married, tell them they've got to bring you what the tribunal sent them. You've got to get whatever letter they sent, a copy of the decree. You want to see what was sent to them, and you want to read it carefully. Because, first of all, you want to make sure that the marriage, in fact, was declared invalid. So you want to read it carefully and make sure that that's what it was. So there would be an affirmative decision in that case. But then you want to see if there's anything else attached to it. And sometimes the judge will attach what's called a vaditum or a monitum to it. He might use the word vaditum or monitum, or he might simply express it in plain language. A vaditum is a prohibition on a future marriage. So a vaditum is a prohibition on a future marriage. 
the tribunal is saying um, very often it's, uh, it's because um, somebody had deep-seated psychiatric problems. Yeah, yeah the, person, the person was not able to get married, certainly the marriage is invalid because the person is nuts. But for that very same reason, the person can't get married again because he can't do it, you know? Um, so there'd be a vedicum. Uh, attached to, or whatever else it might be, a person uh, just, who knows, a person might have uh, uh, just an attitude towards marriage that is, um, that is at variance, shall we say, with, with, uh, with, with reality. So a person might uh, just have this attitude toward, towards marriage that, that he can just, uh, um, you know, get married and go on from one marriage to another. You know, the, the permanence is not, is not uh, an issue, you know. So you might put a vedicum on 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 his getting married again because he um, he either culpably or not he doesn't understand what what marriage really is you know whatever it might be there would be a, a very serious reason for the the tribunal to say this person must not get married you know sometimes there's been physical violence in the in the um, in the marriage and there'll be a, a vedicum put on it because of that you know oh my God I remember uh, uh, one of the first um, cases I had, again, before I became a judge, the, um, the respondent allegedly, uh, was it the respondent? One of the parties, uh, the guy took a gun to the head of the, of, of the, of the, um, of the wife, you know, and, and, and said, if you don't do whatever, I'm going to pull the trigger, you know? So, I mean, you know, so I had recommended to the judge that he uh, put a vein to him on that, that guy, you know? Um, so things come up uh, uh, that are very serious. So the tribunal will sometimes put a vetum uh, on the sentence, which is a prohibition of future marriage. We'll say that, you know, usually it's one of the parties, sometimes it's both parties, who knows, but at least one of the parties is prohibited from marrying again. Uh, at the same time, if there's a possibility of the vetum being lifted, the tribunal will usually um, include an explanation of how that could happen. Very typically, it would be because this person has uh, very serious psychiatric problems, not psychiatric, say psychological problems, deep-seated psychological problems, but it's not its not an impossible situation. So the, the tribunal might say, in order for the, um, the vedicum to be lifted, um, the petitioners say, must um, uh, seek a course of therapy with a, a reputable um, uh, you know, psychiatrist, whatever, who then must give a report to the tribunal saying the person is okay to get married, you know? uh, something like that. Um, sometimes, uh, in less serious situations, uh, Father uh, Richard Welch, who succeeded me as the, um, uh, as the judicial vicar, uh, he would simply assign a book to be read because the person just didn't get it, didn't understand marriage at all. It was so totally a product of their time. So he would, he would decide a, a book to be read, and then he kind of quizzed the person on it afterwards, you know, to make sure the person got it, understood what marriage is, you know, whatever it might be. So there could be very serious reasons. There could be uh, reasons that are serious but not insurmountable, whatever. But read carefully. And, and if there is a vedicum, you can't do a wedding, right? You can help the person. You can uh, – and this – this happened any, happens any number of times. Uh, the person wants to get the vedicum lifted and wants to get their act together so they can get married. Then you can help them to go through whatever process is described there to get to get the uh, vedicum lifted. You know, um, but you yourself may not countermand the um, the vedicum, right? It's um, uh, 
it's beyond you. It's beyond your control. Um, if you do countermand the vetum, you are a very bad boy. But does that make the marriage that you do invalid? No, it's a prohibition. All right. The, um, the tribunal is saying, with the authority of the bishop, basically, the, uh, the tribunal is saying so-and-so is forbidden to, to get married. But the, they, can't, um, they can't impose that for, uh, as, a, as a matter of validity. So it would be a very bad thing to do. Uh, you'd be disobeying um, you know, legitimate authority in the church, but the marriage itself would be valid. It probably wouldn't last very long if there was a vedicum on it, and you just ignore the vedicum, but um, that, be that as it may, okay? So that's a vedicum, prohibition. A monitum. Cardinal Egan, then Archbishop Egan, had arrived in New York. Uh, as I mentioned to you at the beginning of this class, if you remember, uh, then Monsignor Egan was one of the top uh, canon, English-speaking canon lawyers in the world. And Pope um, uh, John Paul II called him his canon law professor. So soon after he arrived in New York, um, there was a case that he, he, he called me about. Um, and I was, uh, I was uh, saying, well, in a case like that, there, there, there might be a, a veditum or a monitum. Cardinal Egan, the great um, canon law scholar, said to me, what's a monitum? <laughs> so it's... It's not an, a, kind of an official kind of term. It's, uh, it's something that's been in use, uh, actually not for decades, in, in, um, in tribunals in the United States and maybe elsewhere, I don't know. But it's, it's a warning, okay? It's a Latin word for, for, uh, for warning. Uh, it's not a prohibition, it's a warning. Uh, saying that there's a problem here, you know? Um, and this problem needs to be addressed. But it's not saying that um, the tribunal itself is going to supervise this. You know, it's saying it's saying you, deacon, so and so, you have to make the judgment. You got to take care of this. All right. So it would be it would be something that wouldn't be as grave as uh, a matter that would call for a for a veditum. But there's still a serious problem here. All right. The the the, um, the tribunal is telling you, you know, deacon, priest, whatever. There's a problem with this guy, you know. If he wants to get married, you need to know about this problem, and you got to deal with it. That's <laughs> what it's what it's saying. Okay. So it would be, um, you know, a psychological problem that wouldn't be a grave psychological problem. Typically, you know, the guy has all sorts of issues, you know, that, that you've got to, you know, sit down with him and discuss, and then you've got to work with him getting a, um, a therapist or whatever, you know, something like that. But it'd be up to you. And the final decision about whether that person can marry again would, would be also be up to you, you know. But they're telling you there's a problem and you need to work on it. You know? So that's a monitum. Right? So a monitum is a warning um, and, it, and it basically punts. You know, it's, it's it both in your court that I just mix metaphors anyway, mix sports metaphors. But anyway, uh, it punts it to you. It's up to you now. Um, but a veditum, it's not up to you, it's up to the tribunal. Or a, a bishop. I mean, I don't want to get into the details of this. This it could be a, um, a bishop. The person goes to another diocese. A bishop in a diocese might look something like that. But but uh, it's it's out of your hands. You cannot lift a baby. To, okay? Is that clear? You need to know those terms. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Canon ten seventy two. It's just common sense. Pastors of souls are to take care to dissuade youth 
from the celebration of marriage before the age at which a person usually enters marriage according to the accepted practices of the region. That's not a problem in our region, is it? Uh, we're trying to persuade people to marry sooner rather than later, right? <clears throat> okay, any questions so far? Okay. Now um, we're going to deal, deal with what's called dearment impediments, okay? beginning with Canon 1073. So, um, <clears throat> and just impediments uh, in general. So, uh, impediment, the word itself means something that impedes, right? Impediment is something that prevents a marriage. So you have um, two types of impediments. Okay, can you read that? Okay. Um, uh, and this is, is explained um, on, on page uh, 1272, right? You have a uh, German impediment, um, and then you have what's called an impedient impediment. German impediment and an impedient impediment. Um, you can thank um, St. John Paul uh, the Great and others that you don't have to memorize a whole uh, list of impedient impediments as we had to when we studied the 1917 code. Because guess what? We don't have impedient impediments anymore. We just have Dearman impediments. So what are the, what's the difference? Um, a Dearman impediment, well, it says it right here. 10.73, a Dearman impediment renders a person unqualified to contract marriage validly. All right? So it's using all those keywords. The person is unqualified and the person, um, and, and it's using the word um, validity or validly, right? So, so this has to do with validity. A Dearman impediment. So if um, they can stupid marriage that person, the marriage is invalid. <laughs> In one sense, that you summed, you summed up the whole thing. <laughs> okay? If Deacon Stupid uh, performs the wedding and there's a Dearman impediment, the marriage is invalid. You got it. Okay? Good. Um, that's a Dearman impediment. The impedient, impedient impediments um, were there for laicity, right? Uh, and we don't have them anymore. So um, this is just an historical. Uh, Remnant here, uh, 1073, when they use the word Dearman impediment, because after this, this is the last time in the code you will see Dearman. Every time they refer to impediments after this, it's just impediments, because every impediment referred to in this code is a Dearman impediment. Right? Uh, the 1917 code had those two types of, of impediments. You don't have to worry about those. So, uh, so we're only talking about Dearman impediments that make a marriage invalid. Okay. Because it makes a person unqualified to be to be married. Um, okay. Now we're going to talk about impediments in general here. That's this section, this short section here. 
Uh, and then we're going to get to, to specific impediments that you need to be aware of uh, because uh, some of them come up with some frequency. Okay. So in, uh, Canon 1074, an impediment which can be proven in the external form is considered to be public, otherwise it is occult. Okay. Do you get it right off the bat? No. Okay. What's the, what's the external forum? It's public. Not internal forum, which is confession or spiritual direction. Right. Okay. In, internal forum is confession or spiritual direction. Okay. Anything else is the external forum. Okay. So for, um, I don't think you guys have this. Uh, the uh, seminarians... Uh, each seminarian has two advisors, uh, one one for the external forum and the other for the internal forum, right? So the external forum would be like his academic advisor who would go over, you know, his academic performance and just his life in general in the seminary. Uh, his spiritual advisor um, would talk to him about matters of conscience, right? So um, when we have meetings, we have meetings every, every Tuesday of, of all of the advisors. Uh, the only ones who speak at those meetings are the advisors for the external forum, but the spiritual directors are there so they can listen and they'll go back and, and report to their uh, advisees. You know? So the internal forum is, is, what is, is what is kept private. The uh, external forum is, is everything else. So an impediment which can be proven in the external forum uh, is considered to be public, right? Otherwise it is a cult. So if it's only something that's known maybe just to that person, um, and he doesn't want to reveal it for whatever reason, uh, then, it's, uh, then it's a cult, right? And there are certain consequences that flow from that. So public and occult impediments. And in 1075 is something that um, you probably won't have to deal with directly, but it's, it's, it's important to understand the principle. Um, Canon 1075, it is only for the supreme authority of the church to declare authentically when divine law prohibits or nullifies uh, marriage. And only the supreme authority has the right to establish other impediments for the baptized. So Canon 1075, I'm speaking quickly here, I know, but, um, but uh, I think you can get this pretty quickly. Um, there are certain impediments of divine law. Okay, uh, A prior bond, as we say, if a person is validly married to one person, and then can't marry someone else. That's divine law, right? Whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery. So the church is the one and only the one to declare authentically what divine law prohibits or nullifies a marriage. Okay? So just interpreting divine law. But then there are other impediments of um, ecclesiastical law, like what we've mentioned already, Canon 1108, you're required to be married Catholic, is required to be married in a Catholic ceremony. Right. Um, so those are impediments of ecclesiastical law, and they are established by the church. Right. They're not of divine law. They're established by the church, and they can be changed. There's talk about even changing, uh, well, about changing some of them. Okay. So, um, but in in either case, the church is the authority. Okay. Only the church can can establish um, impediments of ecclesiastical law. Uh, occasionally, I remember there was a discussion in the uh, priest council. Uh, they wanted to have uh, a requirement that um, that couples who were living together had to be separated for a certain period of time before they could uh, uh, be married. You know, um, it came the way it was worded initially. 
I don't think it went very far. But the way it was worded initially, it sounded almost like they wanted to establish a new impediment. You know, um, so you can't do that. You can have policy of the archdiocese, you know, but you can't you can't establish something for validity. That's only that's up to the supreme authority of the church only. Okay, just so you're aware of that, right? Um, don't worry about Canon 1076 about customs and so forth. Um, then um, Canon uh, 1077. Um, this is really they're speaking about Vedism here, actually. Canon 1077. In a special case, the local ordinary can prohibit marriage for his own subjects residing anywhere, and for all actually present in his own territory, but only for a time. For a grave cause, and for as long as the cause continues, only the supreme authority of the church can add a nullifying clause to a prohibition. So we won't get into this any any further. But the notion of veditum, that's usually exercised by a tribunal, it can be exercised by the local ordinary for whatever reason. Right? I've never seen it done, but it could be. But remember, it's only for laicity. Right? If a person, um, if a if Father, uh, if Deacon Stupid does a wedding anyway, despite the fact that there is a vagitum, he's he's been very bad. He's been disobedient. He should go to confession. Um, but he, um, but the marriage itself, otherwise, would be basically would be considered valid, right? But the supreme authority of the Church, when something comes back from the Vatican, they can impose a vagitum, and it can be for validity. Um, now dispensing from dis uh, from impediments, and you're going to be involved with this all the time when you're doing weddings. So it's important to, to understand this. Um, who can dispense? First of all, the local ordinary can dispense his own subjects residing anywhere, and all actually present in his own territory from all impediments of ecclesiastical law, except those whose dispensation is reserved to the apostolic see. So most of these impediments that we're going to be looking at individually can be dispensed by um, the local ordinary. Um, and if a person is married, say a person uh, lives in Brooklyn and wants to get married in Kansas, right? Um, the, um, the dispensations can be granted by either bishop. Okay, So if, if, if a person... Um, uh, typical dispensation you'll be dealing with all the time is, uh, we'll get to this, but I just mentioned it as an example, it's called disparity of, of cult, uh, which means that uh, one party is Catholic, the other party is unbaptized. Uh, it's, it is, um, and it's invalid to, to be married uh, under those circumstances. You need a dispensation, it's an ecclesiastical law. And um, who can dispense that? If, if if say uh, you know Catholic and uh, say a Jewish person uh, who live in New York want to get married in Kansas, the bishop in Brooklyn can dispense it, or, or whoever is allowed to dispense it, Brooklyn can dispense it, or uh, the bishop whoever um, in uh, in Kansas can dispense it. Okay, because it says the local ordinary can dispense his own subjects residing anywhere. Okay, and all actually present in its own territory. So again, if somebody comes into his territory um, in Kansas, then he can dispense as well, okay? Uh, from all impediments of ecclesiastical law, 
You can't dispense from divine law. You can only dispense from ecclesiastical law. Okay. Uh, except those whose dispensation is reserved to the apostolic see. And what are those? Paragraph two. Impediments whose dispensation is reserved to the apostolic see are the impediment arising from sacred orders or from a public perpetual vow of chastity in a religious institute of pontifical right. The impediment of crime, free men, we'll get to that. That's, that's, that's very dramatic. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, mentioned Canon 1090. Um, and then well, let's hold off to number three. Um, so, um, so basically, the local ordinary can dispense from, from, uh, from almost all um, impediments of ecclesiastical law, but when it comes to the impediment arising from sacred orders um, or from a public perpetual perpetual vow of chastity in a religious institute of pontifical right. So somebody, someone is, is in an institute of pontifical right, not a, local, not a diocesan institute, but a, an institute of pontifical right, Franciscans or Dominicans or whatever, uh, and has made final vows. That person is stuck. That person can't get married, validly. So the only one who could dispense from that would be the apostolic see, right? Uh, cremen, we're going to get to that. That involves murder. So um, uh, you'd have other reasons for, for not wanting to do a wedding if there's been a murder involved. But um, um, you think, you know, this was done in Italy, and you can think, you know. Uh, <laughs> that out. Divorce Italian style. So, um, okay. And then... <laughs> And then um, where uh, there's another um, another mention of um, uh, consanguinity, um, and we're going to again we're going to get to this again later when we get to impediments. But uh, it's saying here curiously, a dispension is never given. A dispension is never given from the from the impediment of consanguinity in the direct line. Or in the second degree of the collateral line. Okay, uh, this dispensation is never given. So, okay, get back to our our lines. So you have a common ancestor, right? And you have the direct line. You know, so, uh, you know, John. Lucy and all that, right? That's the direct line, right? Uh, and it's saying the dispensation is never given from the impediment of consanguinity in a direct line. So, uh, so a person's ever allowed to marry their, um, uh, you know, their, their daughter, something weird like that, you know? Um, that's the direct line. Now, uh, remember the collateral line. So you have two siblings, uh, 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 Joy and uh, Lucy and uh, Mark and uh, Titus. Titus is a name which she was very often <laughs> these things in Latin. So, um, all right. So you have so Mark is related to Titus. What's, what's the, um, the type the, the type of relationship, the, uh, the line and the degree? 
Direct line, second degree. Um, the relationship with Martin, can you see? Uh, I think, uh, wait, hold on. Common ancestor, uh, wait. Can, no. can you see the board? Uh, part of it, yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Did I go over too far? Right? Okay. Yeah. All right. You have. You don't see this? Yeah, you get Market types are both male. All right. So the common ancestor, right? Yeah. And we have the brother. The direct line here and the direct line here. But then these are collateral, right? So the relationship of Mark to Titus is what? Collateral line. And what is the relationship? So it's one, two, three. Uh, it's collateral line one, two, three, second degree. Remember, you count everyone involved. One, two, three, four, okay. Between Mark and Titus, you're talking about. Yeah. So five minus one is four. Right. Fourth degree, what line? Of collateral line between Mark and Titus. Consanguinity, right? Right. Um, Okay, so um, just to refresh your memory, but um, what it's telling us is a dispensation is never given for the impediment of consanguinity in the direct line. You see how weird that would be, right? We're in the second degree of the collateral line. So what's the second degree of the collateral line? One, two, three. That's Joy and Lucy. Joy and Lucy. What's their relationship in common parlance? So... Joy and Lucy is collateral line. Um, one, two, three, that's minus one is two. Second right, degree. But, but what, in, in, in common parlance. Oh, you have yeah. Who has two kids. Right. right, they're brother and sister. Yeah, in this case, maybe, maybe we'll make Joy into John, right? So John and Lucy, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, brother and sister has two kids, right? Brother and sister are related how? In terms of degrees and all that? Cosanguinity. Oh no, brother and sister by collateral line. Yeah, so collateral, what is the nature of the relationship first of all? Affinity or consanguinity? Consanguinity. Consanguinity, what degree? First, two, three, second. Second. Second degree of what line? Collateral line. Collateral line, right? So the canon tells us the dispensation is never given from the impediment of consanguinity in the direct line or in the second degree of the collateral line. Okay, dispensation is never granted for uh, for brother and sister to get married. Right. It doesn't say. It doesn't say, however, it would be invalid. It doesn't say it would be invalid. It leaves that up in the air. It doesn't answer the question whether uh, it's invalid for you to marry your sister. That'd be weird, but. Uh, <laughs> It'd be illegal um, uh, in canon law and in civil law, but it doesn't say it would be it, it would be invalid by divine law. And the reason for that is Saint Pope Saint Paul the Sixth. Um, and if you look at the footnote, uh, it's really interesting. The footnote on bottom of twelve seventy seven, footnote number seventeen. Um, it says. Um, this oblique wording of the canon reflects the doubts expressed by some as to whether consanguinity in the second degree of the collateral line is a divine law impediment. 
In fact, on at least one occasion, Pope Paul VI, asserting that it was a matter of ecclesiastical law, granted a dispensation to permit the convalidation of the marriage of a blood half-brother and sister. So it's a totally, it's totally confusing. Yeah, I, th I thought we were talking about fourth-degree collateral line was like improper. Yeah, well, we're going to get to the actual. Yeah, you know, we're going to get to that later. Um, uh, yeah, you're, but it's 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 simply stating here about when when particular dispensations are or not or not given, and it would be so weird for a dispensation to be granted uh, in those circumstances that it, it states right away it's just not done. Because okay. it's listing here, just in general, uh, the types of things that you can dispense from or cannot dispense from. So this is uh, in, in a list of things that cannot be dispensed from. You can dispense from um, consanguinity and affinity, and we will see that uh, in upcoming canons. But it's stating right now that you're not going to get this dispensation for a brother and sister to marry. You know, it's just too weird. But it's been done. That's the problem. Paul VI himself did it. So, so in the real world, would I mean we obviously wouldn't dispense from something less than the fourth degree collateral line, correct? Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that in particular. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, we'll get into that later. Um, okay. But but this particular scenario, they they want to stress right now. We'll get back to consanguinity and affinity later. But this they want to stress right now that. Um, the dispensation is not granted for somebody to marry their sister. Except, of course, if you're a certain congresswoman from the Midwest. Oh, God. <laughs> she can do whatever she wants. Otherwise, you're a racist. I'm yeah, sorry. But she, she, she got divorced quickly, so it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, I didn't want to inject politics into you, but I, I couldn't resist. So, um, <laughs> oh, um, okay, so... Brandon. You get the basic idea. Basically, local ordinary can dispense, except from these weird situations. Uh, not so weird. Sacred orders, uh, you can't dispense from that. Public uh, perpetual vow, uh, institute of pontifical right. Free men, which we'll get to in a moment, uh, in a few moments. And finally, uh, consanguinity uh, in the direct line or in the second degree of the collateral line. You can't dispense from any of that. Now, um, situations and um, dispensations and situations of danger of death. Um, uh, it's important to know these. I found out um, because you may be involved in a situation like this. You may have to, have to make a split, um, a second decision or a, a, a quick decision. Um, so let's go over this. Uh, Canon 1079 in urgent danger of death. The local ordinary can dispense his own subjects residing anywhere and all actually present in his territory, both from the form to be observed in celebration of marriage and from each and every impediment of ecclesiastical law, whether public or occult, except the impediment arising from the sacred order of presbyterians. Okay. So in urgent danger of death, um, you can dispense uh, uh, <clears throat> from, from every impediment of ecclesiastical law, including the ones that uh, we were just told he can't dispense from. So you can dispense from everything except for a priest. Okay, you can't dispense. You can dispense a deacon, but not a priest. Okay. Um, in the same circumstances, but only for cases in which the local ordinary cannot be reached, even the pastor, the properly delegated sacred minister, and the priest or deacon who assists at marriage 
according to Norm Canon 1116 number 2, possesses, possesses the same power of dispensing. Uh, we'll look quickly at 1116 number 2. Just get to the other the other things um, where the local ordinary cannot be reached and the person is in danger of death. Okay, so serious, it's a grave situation, literally. You know, who can dispense? The pastor, the properly delegated sacred minister. So that would be uh, that would be any of us, right? Uh, once you're ordained, um, if you're if you're delegated, if you're delegated to to do uh, a wedding for that person, where um, you you have where you have general delegation. To, to do um, that would include the, this person in these circumstances, then um, then you can uh, you yourself can dispense from all of these impediments, except the sacred order of presbytery. Okay. Um, in danger of death, also confessor possesses the power of dispensing um, from a cult and cult, cult impediment. You don't have to worry about that. Um, in the case mentioned in number two, the local ordinary is not considered accessible if he can be reached only through telegraph or telephone. This is how, how old these, um, the tradition behind these canons is, right? So that's considered an um, extraordinary means is picking up a telephone and calling the chancery office. You know, we do it all the time. And in fact, you want to do it that way. Okay? Cut to the chase. Uh, if you have a deathbed situation and you need a dispensation, you, you need to do a wedding right now, you know, um, you can um, really at that at that point, if the person's like gasping their last breath or something like that, you, you can just do it. You know, um, if you have a little bit of time, but not much, if you have maybe a couple of hours, who knows? Uh, it would be good to it would be wise to call the chancery office and let them know what's going on. You know, um, uh, but but otherwise, uh, if you don't have time to call them, um, then you then you yourself can grant the dispensation, unless it's a priest. And you, you can't dispense, dispense it. Right. So that's uh, that's how serious that is. Right. Um, you don't to call them afterwards either. Either way, right? Well, afterwards you've got to yeah, there's cleanup to do afterwards. You got to report all this and so on and so forth. But, uh, and you you would say dispensation granted, virtue of Canon 1079 number two, and so forth. Okay. All right. So if there's danger of death, um, technically. If you if you can't get to the ordinary, you know, in, in writing or in person, then technically you can you can grant the dispensation yourself because it says even using telephone is um, uh, means that the, the ordinary is not considered accessible. But in fact, you would want to do that. You call up, um, yeah, you would want to call somebody in the chancery office. They might not be able to answer fast enough, in which case you can go ahead and grant the dispensation. And then just do the wedding very simply. That's what I did with my own sister. You know, um, uh, she, uh, uh, I told you the story, didn't I? Did I? I forget. She was dying. Um, yep. 
She had lung cancer. The thing they, they thought they had gotten it. She was, she was fine for 10 years. Then it came back and it had spread and so forth. Um, they did what they could and she would, they were very optimistic, but suddenly things took a turn for the worse. And one morning, uh, you know, uh, she was in the hospital, she was going downhill, but they thought, well, maybe we'll see, we'll try this and everything. One morning they said, no, this isn't going to work. You know? Um, and, uh, so they, uh, they're still trying up to the last minute practically, you know, but, uh, that morning she kind of figured she was going, she didn't, you know, there's still some hope, but anyway, um, so finally, um, she, um, she had been married. She and her husband had, um, eloped to a bird sanctuary in Nantucket and got married there with some woman minister or something like that. It's mostly because his Jewish family had given him such a hard time, you know, and she didn't want him to feel bad that his Catholic, her Catholic family was not giving him a hard time, and I could dispense from everything and so on and so she, you know. So they had, they had married outside the church. You can imagine how I felt. You can imagine how my mother felt all those years. And I remember thinking every once in a while, you know, you're going to have to do this on your deathbed, you know. <laughs> sure if that's what happened, you know. So, um, and she had gone to confession, and she had uh, she really uh, received the sacraments and everything. And um, and then she whispered something to, to Richard, her husband, at, um, on the deathbed. And, and, he, and he said, I, I know, we were going to, because they had talked about getting marriage kind of validated. I said, I know, but we can't now. God understands, blah, 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 blah. She whispered to him again. He turned to me, he looked at me, and he said, do it. <laughs> so right then and there, I did a wedding on her deathbed, which consisted of, you know, Richard used to take Janet for your lovely, lovely wedded wife. You know, I do. And they shouted it because they'd shouted their, their, uh, thing they had, they'd shouted their, their, um, vows on Nantucket. And I asked Janet, Janet, do you take Richard for your lovely wedded husband? She shouted it. Because she said, I do. <laughs> With a big smile. You know? So, um, so at that moment, their marriage was convalidated. And that's all, that's all I needed. And I recorded it later, and I, after she died, I got in a, a marriage certificate and all the rest. So, uh, so it happens. I'm just telling you, it happens. You know? So you can dispense from everything at that point, uh, including the, obviously the form of marriage, because I, I dispensed from the form of marriage. I wasn't going to go through the whole nine yards. You know? Although the canonical form was absurd, because there's a priest and two witnesses. Another situation that comes up also, now we, we dealt with danger of death. This second situation is now danger of your death. Because uh, when everything is ready for the wedding, something comes up. And if you don't do the wedding, you're dead. Okay, so um, you know what I mean. So Canon 1080, uh, whenever an impediment is discovered after everything has already been prepared for the wedding, and the marriage cannot be delayed without probable danger of grave harm, until a dispensation is obtained from the competent authority, the local ordinary, and provided that the case is a cult, all those mentioned uh, in the previous canon, when the conditions prescribed therein have been observed, possess the power of dispensing from all impediments, except those mentioned in canon 1078, um, paragraph 2, number 1, um, which, um, which is um, basically sacred orders, right, and, and, uh, and solemn vows. So um, <clears throat> this power is valid even to convalidate a marriage if there is the same danger of delay, there is insufficient time 
to make recourse to the FSLC or to the local ordinary concerning impediments from which he's able to dispense. Now, in a case like this, we say omnia parata ad nuptias. Just, I'm not going to inquire this while you're not going to have, you might have this in the exam somehow, but this is mostly for your information. Can you guys read this? No. Can you read this? No. Can't? No. Omnia parata? Yeah. Try it again. All right. You read it? No? Yes. that term because um, you'll see it in you know all sorts of places when you're dealing with weddings um, all things are prepared are ready for the nuptials ad nuptias right nuptial nuptias right so only parata ad nuptias everything's ready for the wedding and whoops the uh, the um, it turns out the, um, the the groom really wasn't baptized after all you know and suddenly you have We'll see it uh, later. You have you have an ecclesiastical impediment uh, that affects validity. You need a dispensation, and you need it stat. You know, um, so it depends again on the situation. If the bride and the groom are right there, and the music is playing, they're coming up the aisle. You just grant it. Okay, uh, this isn't the best scenario. Uh, you only do that in, in an extreme situation, right? Um, but. Um, Otherwise, uh, you make a frantic phone call to the chancery office, and they will, uh, you know, they will give you the dispensation basically over the phone. You know, um, but um, so omnia prata ad nuptias, everything is prepared for the wedding, and the marriage cannot be delayed without probable danger of grave harm. What is the probable danger of grave harm besides your physical safety uh, and a huge lawsuit? <laughs> But besides that, um, they um, they might just say, you know, screw you. We're going to the local, you know, nice Protestant church across the street, or we're going to go to whatever. And I'm never coming back to the Catholic Church again. So again, su supreme elects, right? Um, so th this would be harm to their possibly to their own salvation, you know. Um, so for whatever the reason, if it's if it's a serious reason. You know, there's a danger of grave harm, usually grave spiritual harm. Um, th then you can, you yourself can grant the, uh, the dispensation. Okay. Um, and, and it's for all these cases that we saw uh, two canons ago, two canons ago, canon 1078, um, except now for um, uh, anybody in, um, in sacred orders. Right, that would include now deacons in this case like this. Right, um, anybody in sacred orders, or anyone who's in a you know um, pub, in a 
religious institute of pontifical right in final vows, solemn vows. So this scenario comes up with some frequency, unfortunately. So in a case like that, as I said, call the chancery office if you can. If you can't, you can grant it yourself. Okay. Any question about that? So this is the external forum, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. If it's a cult, what happens then? Well, that's not your problem because you're not going to be hearing confessions. Thank God. Yeah, but a confessor can dispense from occult impediments. But the problem is you might have to prove that that dispensation was granted. Then what do you do? You can't violate the seal of confession or whatever. So you might have to – it's always good with these things to bring them into the external forum if possible. And you can't grant it in the internal forum anyway. And what happens after you've done this? Canon 1081, the pastor or the priest or deacon mentioned in Canon 1079 number two is to notify the local order immediately about a dispensation granted for the external forum. It is also to be noted in the marriage register. So you record the marriage as you would any other marriage. And you note the fact that this dispensation was granted in virtue of whatever the canon was, Canon 1079 or Canon 1080. Then just for your information, there's so many things to learn here. You don't have to remember this, but Canon 1082 regarding the internal forum. A dispensation from an occult impediment in the non-sacramental internal forum is noted in a book which must be kept in a secret archive of the curia. So that's a problem if that happens. So don't worry about that. All right. Any questions so far about Dierman impediments to the general procedure? Okay. Now we get to specific Dierman impediments. These are pretty straightforward, most of them. So, again, some of these are divine law and some of these are ecclesiastical law. And it should be pretty clear with almost all of them, if not all of them. So Canon 1083, a man before he has completed his 16th year of age and a woman before she has completed her 14th year of age cannot enter into a valid marriage. The Conference of Bishops is free to establish a higher age for illicit celebration of marriage, which they have indeed done in the United States. But the universal law has 16 and 14. 16 for the guy, 14 for the girl. And, again, this is for laicity. This is not divine law. It's for laicity. However, now we have a canon that has to do with validity. And this is in regard to impotence. And there's a specific canonical understanding of impotence. So Canon 1084, antecedent and perpetual impotence to have intercourse, whether on the part of the man or the woman, whether absolute or relative, nullifies marriage by its very nature. And if the impediment of impotence is doubtful, 
a marriage, uh, whether by a doubt about, about the law or a doubt about a fact, a marriage must not be impeded, nor while the doubt, doubt remains declared null. And sterility neither prohibits nor nullifies marriage without prejudice of the prescript of Canon 1098 on fraud. So, all right, let's go over this uh, a little bit more detail. Antecedent and perpetual impotence to have intercourse. So it, um, impotence means that the, um, the sexual act, as has been described already, cannot be completed, right? Um, you know, if there's only a partial erection, you can't complete the act. Um, then the, for canonical purposes, the, the man is innocent, you know? The woman could have, you know, all sorts of, uh, there could be uh, medical problems, uh, whatever. There could be uh, psychological problems, whatever it is. But uh, if the end result, whether it's a physical, a physical origin, or a psychological origin, if the end result is um, one of the parties uh, cannot complete the act of intercourse, you know, uh, which means the semen gets to its destined um, target, uh, then uh, then the person is impotent. Okay. Now, um, now for canonical purposes, impotence um, must be antecedent and perpetual. So perpetual is clear. It means that uh, it's not just person wasn't feeling well and couldn't do it or was distracted and just can't get in the mood or whatever. But a person just can never do it, can't do it, you know? Um, uh, that's, that's perpetual intercourse, right? Um, and it can be absolute or relative. So you can, uh, so it has to be uh, perpetual. It has to be, um, it has to be, um, it can be either absolute or relative, which means that a person just, um, the absolute means a person just cannot achieve intercourse with anybody. You know, you could get the, the sexiest woman in the world in and can't, can't do it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's anybody, you know, just can't do it, you know, um, Versus, that's so that's absolute intercourse, can't ever do it. Versus relative uh, impotence. So the person can can achieve intercourse, but not with this one person. You know, there's a hang up about this one person. You know, uh, I'm not a you know psychiatrist, psychologist, or anything, but you know, I could I could see, for instance, um, you know, you should marry your best friend, right? But you know, some some people I, I think can't make the transition from being just friends to to that, and then it becomes it gets too difficult. You know, um, whatever it might be, this this one person can't do it. For one person for whatever reason, but but otherwise, the person is, is capable of sexual intercourse. That would be relative uh, impotence, right? And this condition of impotence must be antecedent. Uh, which means that the person um, has never, ever been able to have intercourse, if it's absolute, or the person has never, ever been able to have intercourse with this one person. I mean, that would, we hope, if they're leading more lives, that's a theoretical thing, you know, but, uh, uh, but whatever the condition is, the person could not, if the person had tried, the person would not have been able to have intercourse with this person before the marriage either. So it has to be antecedent. It was just always there. Antecedent is perpetual. It existed before. It continues to exist. Uh, doesn't look like there's any hope for this. 
So that's antecedent and perpetual. It's absolute. In general, a person can't do it, or relative. The person can do it, but not with this one person. Not ever with this one person. So that is an impediment of divine law. Now we're up to 930, so if you read over the rest next time. Right? Thank you.